as a consequence of that active, brave engagement with the domain of what we did not understand, the terrifying domain of what we did not understand, that the world, in fact, was generated. And that idea lurks deeply inside the, the opening lines of, of Genesis. And it's, a, and it's a profound idea in mind. We have to think about the world the way they thought about the world. Okay, and so we have to try to accommodate to that world, else we're likely to impose our way of thinking on the text without knowing it, distort the text. Hey everyone, Paul here. So recently I've been thinking quite a bit about what a hypothetical conversation might be like between two men who have garnered a considerable amount of attention for their views on the biblical book of Genesis. Those two men are Jordan Peterson, a psychologist, author, and public lecturer, and John Walton, an Old Testament, ancient Near Eastern scholar, author, and professor. Now, Peterson is an admirer of the Christian story, but he is not a professing adherent to the Christian story and Christian community. Walton, on the other hand, is a professing adherent to uh, the Christian story, Christian community. He is a Christian professor at a Christian university. But both of them have sparked renewed interest in re-examining the opening chapters of the book of Genesis. So this, this kind of got me thinking about, well, what would this be like if these two men got together for a conversation? It's something I would love to have happen. I've had Walton on before in the past. I have not had Peterson on. I'd love to have Peterson on. I'd love to have both of these men on for a conversation. Because there are two approaches, there are two hermeneutic approaches to exploring the opening chapters of the book of Genesis are wildly different. And yet, as you're about to hear in these clips I'm going to play for you shortly, there are some points of intersection I see, some points of harmony, obviously some points of dissonance too. Um, Peterson's lectures on the book of Genesis garnered some million, I mean multiple million views so far on YouTube. Uh, John Walton's books of the Lost World series. So uh, the lost world of Genesis 1, the lost world of Adam and Eve, he even has the lost world of the flood, etc, etc, have been really, really popular books in evangelical circles and academic circles. They've also been very controversial in many Christian circles as well. Both of these men present some controversial perspectives, at least to those who, like me, were raised in this like fundamentalist, young earth creationist reading of Genesis, and their different perspectives on this book certainly have sparked renewed interest among many people who completely dismissed the book of Genesis as being an irrelevant book, an irrelevant story, especially those that had found too much tension between faith and science issues. It's often pitted against each other. And both of them come at it from a very different hermeneutic approach. Of course, Peterson approaches this again, not necessarily as someone um, explicitly committed to the Christian story and Christian community, but he's very much interested in the book of Genesis in a sort of uh, Jungian archetype, a Jungian psychology a reading of the book. He's very much interested in the symbolic mythology of the book. He's very much interested in the uh, the, the book as maybe a, a piece of ethical wisdom literature. And of course, Walton comes at it as an, a prof profoundly brilliant Old Testament scholar with um, you know a PhD 
in ancient Near Eastern um, history and languages and, 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 and is an Old Testament scholar. So their perspectives are very, very different. So what I wanted to do in this video is I wanted to piece together some clips from both of their lectures and I, I tried to do it focused just on Genesis 1 for today's video. Uh, both of them have given lectures on the book of Genesis, on Genesis 1 in particular, and what I'm doing in today's video is piecing together side by side some clips from both Jordan Peterson and John Walton. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to provide these without commentary. So I'm not going to do any commentary on these clips in today's video, because what I really want to do is I really want to put these clips side by side, and I really want to mine your collective wisdom as viewers and listeners. And I'd love to hear from you in the comment section of this video, or for those that are just listening via audio podcast, you can certainly participate in the discussion forum on my Patreon page. What I want to hear from you is after you've listened to both of these men side by side, where were you finding points of harmony and points of dissonance between their perspectives? So that's the question. I'd love to hear from you in the comment section below, or if you're just listening on the audio podcast, you can connect on my Patreon page and participate in the discussion forum. So I hope you enjoy these clips and uh, yes, leave your comments. I look forward to reading them. And then to trace it back to these old ideas to see if there's some if there's some metaphysical, let's say, metaphysical connection. So, all right, so here's how, the, here's how the book opens. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, this is a hard, this is a hard, uh, what would you call, narrative section to, to get a handle on, because... In order to understand it properly, you have to actually look behind it. So there, there are a lot of pieces of old stories in the Old Testament that flesh out the meaning of these lines. And, and I, can, I can give you a quick overview of it. One of the ideas that lurks underneath these lines, although you can't tell because it's in English, you have to look at the original languages, and of course, I don't speak the original languages, so I've had to use secondary sources. Too, too bad for me. But the, the, the uh, without form and void and the deep idea, you see, that's associated with this notion of endless deep potential. So, for example, the words that are used to represent without form and void are something like, well, one is to, I'm going to get this partly wrong, tohu wabohu, and another one is teom. And it's important to know this because those words are associated with an early Mes earlier Mesopotamian word, which is Tiamat. And Tiamat was a dragon-like creature who represented the salt water. And, and Tiamat had a husband named Apsu, and Tiamat and Apsu were sort of locked together in kind of a sexual embrace. And it was that locking together of Tiamat and Apsu, and I would say that's potential and order, something like that, or chaos and order, they were locked together, and it was that union of chaos and order that gave rise in the old Mesopotamian myth, which is the Enume Lish, to, the, to, the, to being, to the old gods first, and then eventually, as, as creation progressed, to human beings themselves. And so there's this idea lurking underneath this, these initial lines that God is akin to that which confronts the unknown and carves it into pieces and makes the world out of its pieces. And the thing that it confronts is something like a, 
Well, it's something like a predatory reptile, or it's something like a dragon, or it's something like a serpent. And I think part of the reason for that, and, and this, this, is, this is a very deep and ancient idea, is that this is where it gets so complicated to do the translation, is partly that is how human beings created our world. Like we went out beyond the confines of our safe spaces, let's say, our, space, our safe spaces defined by, by the tree or defined by the fire, and we actively voyaged outward to the places that we were afraid of and didn't understand and, and, con and, and conquered and encountered things out there, like, like, like literally animals, like mammoths and snakes and predators of all sorts. And it was a, as a consequence of that active, brave engagement with the domain of what we did not understand, the terrifying domain of what we did not understand, that the world, in fact, was generated. And that idea lurks deeply inside the, the opening lines of, of Genesis. And it's, a, and it's a profound idea in my We have to think about the world the way they thought about the world. Okay, and so we have to try to accommodate to that world, else we're likely to impose our way of thinking on the text without knowing it, distort the text. So we have to try to enter that world. Now, so we have to see the world the way they did. Here we've got our nice blue earth picture from space. If I had an ancient Israelite right here transported, you know, beam me down, you know, had an ancient Israelite right here to look at that, they wouldn't know what they were looking at. They would have no clue what this was a picture of. Because they don't think about the world this way. We can look at this and we can interpret a lot of the things on it. It communicates to us. We know what it's reflecting. But an Israelite would have no idea what that was. They don't think about the world we do, the way we do. And notice also that God did not tell them about this in order to communicate with them. He communicated in terms of their world and how they thought. Because he wasn't trying to reveal to them the ultimate cosmic geography that, that all people of all time should now believe it's a good thing because, of course, uh, cosmic geography changes. You know, even in recent times, cosmic geography changes. I mean, it wasn't 100 years ago that people believed in a steady-state universe. And now Big Bang cosmology is all the thing. That's cosmic geography, and it changed. We used to think Pluto was a planet. Oops. You know, things change. I was at a conference about a year ago, and there was a UCLA astronomer giving a, a paper. And uh, he said, you know why Pluto's not a planet anymore? No, no, tell us, you know, please. He said, well, we, we found it, with all the in, improved technology, we found 300-plus uh, other bodies right in the vicinity of Pluto that were exactly the same as Pluto. So we either had to add 300 or take away Pluto. And we couldn't do it to the school kids. They have to learn the names of these things. So it was an act of charity. Yeah. Anyway, cosmic geography changes. So God didn't reveal cosmic geography for all time. Okay, now, uh, so how did people think in the ancient world? See, that's the question we have to ask. How did they think about the world back then? Well, let's start with Egypt. Um, the 
Egyptians, this is from an ancient tomb painting. And on your right is, uh, my son's an artist, and so I get him to help me sometimes and draw pictures that kind of help me communicate things. So that's kind of a more modern rendition, but basically the same picture. Uh, I don't know about you, but you know, that, that I, get, I get that more than this. But let's, let's, uh, let's talk from this one here. This is a picture of how they viewed the world. This is the solid sky, the dome of the sky, stars emblazoned on her body. Her name's Nut, okay, and she holds back the waters above. That's all of these. That's the waters above. The solar bark is sailing across the skies. There's the sun god. And this, uh, the sky is held up by the air god, Shu. And here we've got the earth god, Geb, prone across the bottom. Uh, the Nut and Geb used to be married. You know, it didn't work out so well. But, um, but every once in a while, they get hankerings to get back together. And so Shu's got a tough job kind of keeping them apart. No. But at any rate, you can see that their view of cosmic geography is filled with the gods. That's because we put into a cosmic geography those things which are most important to us. There's prioritization going on. What parts of it do you picture? And how do you picture them? And so we learn a lot by looking at someone else's cosmic geography. And so they've got the gods all through it. That's not a picture of the material cosmos, although it reflects kind of how they thought about the material cosmos, solid dome of the sky, stars emblazoned on the body. I mean, it reflects some of that. But it's really not intended to be a material picture. Okay, they didn't believe that if they you know, walked too far, they would step on her toes or something. It wasn't that kind of way of thinking but it's filled with the gods. Now, of course, the Israelites wouldn't have this kind of picture. Okay, how would the Israelites think about theirs? Unfortunately, they left us no tomb paintings, so we're kind of stuck uh, producing our own. Again, I got my son to help me on this one. And we just really went through the biblical text and took all the things that were there and tried to reflect them in the, the picture. Now, here we've got the heavenly temple uh, with its foundations on the waters above. We get that out of Psalms. It's sort of connected to the earthly temple. Uh, we've got the solid dome of the skies holding back the waters above, and we've got the waters below. Uh, we have a single continent. We have the sun, moon, and stars inside the solid sky. We've got the pillars of the earth reflected here. Sheol, the netherworld, dangling down below, and Leviathan swirling around in the depths. Uh, all of it coming out of biblical text. Now, that's a lot different from the Egyptian one, but what you should notice is that it's more different from ours than it is from theirs. To say that another way, if an Egyptian looked at this, they'd know exactly what it was a picture of. And if the Israelites looked at the Egyptian one, they'd know exactly what it was a picture of. But either the Egyptian or the Israelite looking at ours, they would have no clue. This talks about the commonality that is shared among those who lived in the ancient world, even though they have very distinct differences. And we typically discover that when we're comparing between Israel and the other nations around them. Now, if the Israelites thought about the world around them something like that, we have the important question to ask. When God communicates to Israelites, whose cosmic geography does he use? Do we expect God to use our cosmic geography? If so, would he count Pluto as a planet or not? 
you know? Do we, did he use medieval cosmic geography, Hellenistic cosmic geography? How about the cosmic geography of 100 years from now when we get smarter? And No, because cosmic geography always changes. There is no right cosmic geography. And so God just uses theirs. He communicates in terms that are familiar. Not to put a stamp of authority on this cosmic geography, but because you've got to use something to talk about. God wasn't trying to give authoritative revelation about cosmic geography. But he had to use cosmic geography to talk about the things that he is saying with authority. So, as we learn about the way Israel thought about the world, we have to read texts in light of how Israel thought about their world. Now, not only do we have to think about the world the way they thought about the world, we have to think about the text the way that they thought about the text. Remember, if the authority is vested in this ancient author, then whatever he meant by the words is what they mean. The text can't mean what it never meant. And therefore, we are not free to give new meanings to words to accommodate our kind of thinking. We can't say, well, the Bible says that God stretched out the heavens. Big Bang cosmology. They didn't know. No, it doesn't mean Big Bang cosmology. You can't give meaning to the word stretch out the heavens that it didn't have for the author. Now, let me give a little caveat to that. If you found a New Testament author that said, yeah, yeah, when they were talking about stretching out the heavens, it was Big Bang cosmology, you know, go with it. But, you know, that doesn't happen. We can't give scientific meaning to words that never had such scientific meaning Otherwise, we empty it of authority because now suddenly it's what we want to mean by it instead of what the author who had authority vested in him meant by it. So authority doesn't really give, give us a lot of leeway here. We have to read the text the way they read it. Now, as we proceed trying to think the way that they thought, uh, we find out that we've, we've got a little thing to uh, get over here. Um, we have these categories, natural and supernatural, and we're comfortable with them. We talk about miracles. We talk about intervention. Uh, all of these concepts that have to do with understanding this divide between natural and supernatural. But that's our categories. What are their categories? Well, I think you'll find, I found, and I think the evidence is clear enough, that in the ancient world, they really didn't have those as two different categories. There's no natural laws, natural science. There, there's nothing natural. God is involved in all of it. They weren't differ differentiating different levels of cause. I mean, uh, you, you can't go back to Aristotle. I mean, we're not dealing in that world yet. And so they, didn't, they, they considered God to be involved in everything. Nothing's natural. 
Well, in that way of thinking, it creates some interesting situations because that means if God's involved in everything, then there's really no such thing in their minds as intervention. Because God's always acting. God's always doing. To intervene, you have to be outside not doing it. And then, then you can intervene by stepping into something that is not you. Nothing like that in the Bible or in the ancient world. So it's, by saying there's no intervention, that doesn't mean God is not acting, that he's kind of always outside, like deism or something. No, no, this is, he's always at work. Even our word miracle assumes the idea that, that there are things that God isn't doing, that aren't God's activity, that are non-miracles, and then, then he does something, and that's a miracle. Those aren't Israelite categories. The Bible talks about signs and wonders. God is showing his power. He is showing his care for his people. He's delivering. He's working and acting all the time, but they wouldn't really call them miracles like supernatural versus natural. We encounter a formless and chaotic potential. That's always what we're grappling with. And somehow we use our consciousness to give that form. And this is how people act. Like if, it, if you look at how they regard themselves, it's, it's how they act. Because you say things to people like, well, you should live up to your potential. When, and, and you make a case that there's something about a person that's more than what is, that yet could be if only they participated in the process properly. And everyone knows what that means, and no one acts like a mystery has been uttered when you say that. And, you know, we, you can see a situation in your own life that's full of potential. You're often extremely excited when you encounter something that's full of potential, because what you see is something that could be, you see a future beckoning for you, that could be if only you interacted with it properly. And it activates your nervous system, right, in, in, a, in a very basic way. And we even understand how that happens to the degree that we understand how the nervous system works, because the systems that mediate positive emotion, which are governed roughly by, by the neurochemical dopamine and which have their roots way down in the ancient hypothalamus, a very, very archaic and, and fundamental part of the brain, it, that responds to potential, which is the possibility of accruing something new and valuable. It responds to potential with active movement forward and engagement. And so we're engaged in the world as potential and it looks like consciousness does that. And so there's this idea that and this is the main idea that I think is being put forth in Genesis 1. It's something like, and, and you see this in mythology, like from, from what I've been able to gather, there, there's always three causal elements that make up being at the bottom of, of world mythology. And one is the formless potential that makes up being once it's interacted with, and that's generally given a feminine nature. And, and I think that's because it's like the source from which all things emerge and rise. It's something like that. It's, it's more complicated than that, but it's something like that. And then there's some kind of interpretive structure that has to grapple with that formless potential. And that's, I think that's the sort of thing that was alluded to by Immanuel Kant when, when he was criticizing the notion that all of our information comes from sense data, which would be the pure empirical perspective, right? Because when you encounter the world, you encounter it with a cognitive structure that already has shape. And so it's, it's already in you, this structure. And without that a priori structure, you wouldn't be able to take the formless potential and give it structure. And I think that's something, it's akin in some way to the idea of God the Father. And I'll try to develop that idea more. It's, it's, the, it's the notion that there's something 
in all of us, that transcends all of us, that's deeply structural, that's part of this ancient, well, I would say evolutionary and cultural process that enables us to grapple with the formless potential and bring forth reality, roughly speaking. And then there's the final element, and that element seems to be something like consciousness itself, the consciousness that actually inheres in the individual. So it's not only that you have a structure, it's that the structure has the capacity for action in the world. And it's like, it's, it's you're, the, you're the spirit that gives the dead structure life. It's something like that. And as far as I can tell, the Trinitarian notion that characterizes Christianity is something like, well, formless potential, which has never given a, the status of a deity in Christianity. And then the notion that there's an a priori interpretive structure that's a consequence of, of our ancient existence as, as beings. It goes back as, as far in time as you can go, the, the notion of a structure. And then the idea of a consciousness that, that is, the, is the tool of that structure and that interacts with the world and gives it and gives it reality. And that's the word, as far as I can tell. And so the notion is, is that there's a father, and that's the structure, and there's a son that's transcendent, that characterizes consciousness itself, and that it's the son, the, the speaking of the son, that is the active principle that turns chaos into order. And God, it's such a sophisticated idea. It's, it's, it's if day one doesn't have a material object created, and if the verb doesn't necessarily imply that kind of thing, what's, what are some other ways we can check this out? Well, if it's create and we're moving from one condition to another, non-existence to existence, we need to take a look at the before picture. What did it look like before God created? Now, you can't go to verse 1 for that. Verse 1 is, uh, in my interpretation and many people's, um, there's good support for this, I think. It's a, it's a literary introduction. It's not actually telling you about God creating something. It's telling you that it's going to tell you about God creating something. So, in the beginning, God created heavens and earth. Let me tell you how he did it. Because God's creating heavens and earth took place in the seven days, not before the seven days. And we know that because we get to the end and it said, so God created the heavens and the earth in the six, seven days. Okay, so the, the, this is just literary introduction. So the before picture is verse 2. Now that becomes very important here. So when we look at verse 2, and it describes it as tohu vavohu, uh, formless and empty, something of that sort. But let's take a careful look. Um, let's take a look at what condition is described in verse 2. Is it a condition without materials? Let's read. Now the earth, wait, 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 earth, earth. Where'd that come from? Go on. The earth was form, formless. Um, Plato, what, what, what are we talking about here? What does that word mean? Thank you for asking. We'll get to that in a moment. And darkness was over the surface of the deep. The deep. How come the actors are on the stage already? What kind of account is this? And what we find as we read verse 2 is that the starting point is not lacking matter. Earth, sea, they're there already. The starting point is lacking order. Now, 
can, does that bear up? Well, first of all, from the ancient world, we find out that darkness and sea are elements of non-order in the ancient world. Israel is thinking along the lines of everybody else in the ancient world, starting with non-order. Then we take a look at the terminology, tohu vavohu, and we find out that tohu refers not so much to something that is shapeless, formless, but rather something that is lacking worth or purpose, lacking order, lacking function in an ordered system. Again, I've got the chart of all the uses in the book, and you can check it out yourself. So here we find that the text is not dealing with a situation where matter is lacking, but where order is lacking. We find a parallel in Egyptian. There it talks about the non-existent. The non-existence is a place that's not integrated into the ordered world, not differentiated, not assigned to function, has potential, uh, but there it is, it's not functioning yet. They'll, cause the, they'll call the cosmic sea non-existent. They'll call the desert non-existent. They send their enemies into the non-existent, and that doesn't mean that they're uh, annihilated in body and spirit. They just driven off into the non-existent realm. Now, the philosophical term for thinking about existence is ontology. And so ontology, what does it mean for something to exist? Clearly, the ontology of the ancient world is different from ours. We have what we could call a material ontology. Things exist when they take material form and shape. Okay, but in the ancient world, that's not where the line is. So for, for us today, the line between non-existence and existence is a material line. Okay, it becomes material. In the ancient world, the line between non-existence and existence is not material, it is functional. It has to do with order. Same concepts, it's creating. But the line is in a different place. It's not how we think, but we can't be driven in the text by how we think. We have to try to understand how they think. Now, that leads me then to propose the functional focus for this origins account. When we ask what kind of origins account is this, the leaning that we're getting from the day one, what we looked at, from the verb bara from verse 2 and how it starts, the beginning point, is all pushing us toward function and order and purpose and role. So that's what I'm going to propose as trying to describe what kind of origins account this is. If the ancient functional focus is, is the key, then existence is defined by having a function. And by that I don't mean, you know, okay, so when we talk about the sun functioning, I'm not talking about, was it a burning ball of gas? No, that's, that's scientific functioning. We're not talking about that. I want to know, was it functioning for people in the world that God made for them? And he can't do that until they are there. Tree falls in a forest and nobody's there to hear it. Will it make a sound? Interesting question. Okay, but so I'm not talking about scientific functions. I'm talking about functions for people. The ordered world that they're talking about has people as, a, as the key part of it. 
Okay, so if people aren't there, nothing's functioning. Take the account of a house that's been built and nobody's living in it. It may well be that the electricity's hooked up, the water's hooked up. If anybody were there to turn the faucets and throw the switches, it would work perfectly well. But it's not functioning because nobody's there. That's what we're talking about with functioning. Not being able and ready to function, but actually functioning for someone. In that context, good is not referring to something that's perfect. Hebrew tov does not refer to that. Now, you could make the case that, well, but when it says God is good, isn't that perfection? Well, God is perfect, yes, I'm not arguing with that, but that's not what is conveyed by the Hebrew word there. The Hebrew word being used uh, throughout uh, the usage in the Old Testament is talking about something that's working the way that it should work. That's many of the contexts that you get. Functioning properly in an ordered system. When I go on a plane to fly down here, I assume that the pilot's in the cockpit doing the pre-flight check, the checklist. You know, he's going down the list. You know, flaps, good. Engine, good. Food. Anyway, uh, oh, that's not on the list anymore. Okay, um, so, you know, making sure it's ready to function. Now, how do I know that it means that here? Context, context, context. We would really know what it meant by good if there were only something that was not good. If it only described a not good situation, then we'd know what good was. If it was not good for... Mm, we do have something. It's not good for... Man to be alone. That's not a statement about moral perfection. We won't explore that. Um, it's not, you know, it's, it's just saying that's not, that's not fully functional yet. Genesis 1, then, I would suggest, provides an account of functional origins, not an account of material origins. The origins of order, not the origins of stuff, objects. Genesis 1 it's about God bringing order, functionality, into the midst of non-order, non-functionality. And that's how things work in the ancient world as well. But you can see I'm not imposing it from the ancient world. I'm showing it to you in the text and then saying, oh, by the way, the ancient world thinks this way as well. All right. Anyway, so, so well, so let's go to the next part of this here. <laughs> All right, so... And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so, and God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. Well, to understand that, because what, how did, that doesn't make any sense at all, really. So I think I told you a little bit about this before. So... The, the, the world that's being created in this particular account is a phenomenological world. There's a disk of land, because if you go out in a field and you look around, you're on a disk of land, so that's pretty obvious. And then there's a dome on top of it. It's more or less held up by the mountains, and rain comes down, so there's water above the dome, because where else would the rain come from? And, and underneath the ground, there's fresh water. You can drill down and find that. And then around that, there's salt water, and so that's the... The world, and it's kind of an empirical world because if you're a child and you just go out in a field and you look at the world, that's sort of what it would be like. And so that's the world that's being created. And so one of the things that is worth thinking about, and this is something Carl Jung was very interested in, 
is that these old descriptions are half geographical and half empirical, so sort of based on observation, and half psychological. So one of the things Jung was interested in, for example, was astrology, but mostly for a psychological reason, because, you know, there, obviously there are stars up on the dome, and then when you look at the stars, you can imagine the shapes of the stars, and that helps you orient yourself, because as soon as you can see shapes in the stars, then you can recognize the constellations, and you can orient yourself at night. But then the constellations become gods, say, and the gods turn into a drama. And so, and the drama comes from within. It's the projection of imagination. And so when Jung was analyzing astrology, he was analyzing psychology, because he saw the astrological narrative as the projection of the human imagination onto the cosmos. And so when he was analyzing astrology, he was analyzing psychology. And the, the same thing is the case with these stories, is that the world they, they describe is only, it's not the natural world like a scientist would describe it, because these people weren't scientists, they didn't have the technology and the tools. It was, it was the way they, it, for, for them it was the world, for us it's the way they saw the world. And so we're looking at the way they saw the world, and a lot of that psychology, and we share that psychology to a large degree with those people. So in this is psychology. But it's interesting to know what the geographical substrate is, so that you can kind of understand the stories. And I like this picture, because that's, it's great from a psychological perspective, it's a very famous picture, and, you know, so basically what you have here is the world as we know it, and there's the dome with the sun and the moon on it, and the stars, and then if you look outside what you know, well then you're out into this cosmic space, right, and that's, those are like the wheels of, of the planets, and the, the music of the spheres, and that's the ever-present explorer who's gone beyond the domain that he can understand, and is peering out into the unknown as such. And it's a psychological picture, it's like because you do know some things, and then outside of that there are things you don't know, and when you're feeling brave, you put a foot or two out where you don't understand, like, because there's frontier everywhere, right? And if you're, if you're feeling heroic, and you want to do something for the world, and you want to expand what you understand, you poke your head through what you know, and you take a look at the, at the at whatever structure is out there, and you know, he's pretty smart, because most of them is still where it's safe, and I would say that's a good, that's a good thing, because if you jump right out there, well, then maybe you fall off the edge of the earth, and I wouldn't precisely recommend that, especially if you do it accidentally. And to me, this is a recreation of the, of the Taoist yin-yang symbol, you know, with, the, with the, the, the white paisley here, and that's what you know, and the dark paisley serpents, really, there, and the right place to be is right on the line between them, because you're sort of, you got one foot where you understand, that gives you security, and then, you, you know, but it's kind of dull, because hey, you know everything that's going on there, and that isn't what people are like, they don't want just security. Dostoevsky said that in Notes from the Underground, a great, great book, and you know, he said, I love this, it was his, uh, an early critic, crit criticism of the notion of a political utopia. He said, look, if you gave people everything they wanted, they had nothing to eat but cake, and nothing to do but sit in warm pools and busy themselves with the continuation of the species, that was his, his lines, that the first thing they would do, well maybe after the first week, was like go kind of half insane and smash everything up just so that something that they didn't expect would happen, so that they'd have something interesting to do. And it's, it's so right, because, you know, the, the utopian notion that if you just had all the material stuff you wanted, that you'd, you'd be... Well, what would you be? What, what would you do? Would you just sit on the couch and, and watch TV? I mean, you'd, you'd, 
you'd be, I don't know what, you'd be cutting yourself just for entertainment in no time flat, you know, and that's the sort of thing that people do. And so we're not adapted for security and utopia. We're adapted for a certain amount of security because, you know, we are vulnerable, but mostly we want to have one foot out where we don't know what the hell is going on because that's where you're alert and alive and tense and with it. And, and you know, I think, I believe this, and I believe it actually has something to do with the hemispheric structure of, your, of, your, of the physiology of your brain, is because the right hemisphere looks roughly adapted to what you don't know, and the left hemisphere, and this is a very, this is an oversimplification, but a useful one, is adapted to the world that you do know, and the right place for you to be is halfway between them. Because that, and you can tell that, that's what's so cool, and, and this tells you that this is actually reality that's manifesting itself to you. You know that sense of active engagement you have in the world when things are working well for you, you know, where you're, where you should be at the right time. You're alert, and on top of things, and engaged, and you don't have much of a sense of time, and the sense of the tragedy of life sort of recedes, and that's when you're... That's when you've got one foot when it's, where it's secure and one foot out in the unknown. And your brain signals to you that you're in the right place by making what you're doing meaningful. And that sense of meaning is actually a neurophysiological signal that you've got the forces of the cosmos properly balanced in your being at that moment. And that's why it feels so good. And now, well, what else could it possibly be? I mean, you know, our, our, our brain is capable of looking beyond our vision that's what it's for. And that sense of engagement, there's no reason to assume that that's anything but a real signal. And you can reduce it. You could say, well, the problem with being where you know only is that you don't know everything. And that's going to be a problem in the future. And the problem with being where you know nothing is, <laughs> that's just too much, man. Like, you know, you go into panic mode and because anything can happen there and you can't handle it. So you've got to mediate between those two things. You want to be secure enough so that your physiology isn't revving out of control. And you want to be out there in the unknown enough so that you keep updating yourself constantly, constantly, constantly. And that's, that's the place where information flow is maximized. And you know that because that's where you are when you're having a really interesting conversation with someone or you're gripped by a book or you're really into a movie or maybe something that you do as a... Uh, you know, apart from your work, or maybe even in your work, you're into it, and that's because you are in the right place at the right time, and your whole nervous system is signaling that to you, and I would say that's the sort of place that you should be all the time. If, of course, you can't be, because no one's perfect, but it's, that's, that's the recreation of paradise on earth. It's something like it, because you are in the right place at the right time when that is happening, subject to certain what would you say, restrictions that, that we can talk about later. Well, that's what this guy's doing. And, and that's, I would say, akin to the action that God is taking when he's transforming the chaos of potential into habitable being. And it's the sort of thing that human beings are supposed to act out. And God said, let the waters under heaven be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Well, that's an interesting thing, too, because, you know, there's this, there's this play written by a German named Goethe. I, I can never say that properly. It's Johann van G-O-E-T-H-E, and I can't say it. But he wrote this play called Faust. And, and 
he wrote one part of it when he was quite young, and then Faust too when he was quite old. And he has a character in there, Mephistopheles, and Mephistopheles is the devil. And he actually has the devil explain himself twice, basically using the same words, which, which I really like. It was very profound. And basically, Goethe's Mephistopheles says, you know, he's the adversary of the word. That's a good way of putting it. Um, because that's how it works out mythologically. He's the figure behind the snake in the Garden of Eden, which is something we'll talk about more. But he has a, he has a sophisticated philosophy. He's not just some random troublemaker. He, he's, got a, he's got a deep philosophy, and his philosophy is quite straightforward. And it's compelling. It's compelling. And, and people are gripped by it quite often, far more often than they think. His philosophy is, well, look around at the world. It's like Ivan Karamazov in The Brothers Karamazov, um, when he's trying to disabuse his younger brother of being a, a, a Christian monk. Mephistopheles says, well, look at the world. I mean, all you look around the world, it's nothing but a bloodbath. It's just suffering everywhere. Everything eats everything, and people die terribly, and, and they're cruel to one another, and the whole mess is nothing but a, a constant haul of terrible carnage and, and ruin and, 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 and wreck. He says, it would be better if it was never existed at all. And that's a very interesting, that's a very, very interesting idea. And I do believe, and I've seen this in people many times, that in the depths of despair, especially when you've been betrayed, for example, and you wander into the wrong subdivision of the underworld, that's something that comes to mind. If you, know, you have a very sick child, for example, or maybe your whole family is suffering as whole families do sometimes, an idea is going to come to you. It's like, good God, who put this mess together? And is it really worth it? Is it really worth the suffering? Suicidal people, you know, they say no. They say, no, enough of this. You know, and you have to be pushed a long way, generally speaking, before you'll actually commit suicide. You have to be in very, very desperate straits. But your answer under those conditions is that being is such that it would be better if it had never been. And that's a very, it's, I, think, I think it's a very, it's a terrible philosophy, I believe, because I think what happens if you act it out is that you make the very things that led you to despair far worse. And I can't see that if it's reasonable to draw a logical conclusion that suffering should, justifies your desire to make being end, that the answer to that can't be to produce more suffering. That just doesn't make sense. And my observation has been that people who act out the Mephistophelian philosophy inevitably make suffering far worse. And so, and then that raises the other specter of, well, do they want being just to cease or are they just out for bloody revenge at, every, at any cost? And my conclusion has always been that, is that the mask is, well, being shouldn't exist because it's too terrible, but the true motivation is I'm going to make everyone suffer as much as I possibly can before I say goodbye to this place. And if you read the writings of people like the kids who shot up the Columbine High School, they'll tell you exactly that that's precisely and exactly what they concluded and then acted out. So anyways, but in this, God says that it was good. And I've thought about that a lot. It's like, because the question is something like, well, is, is something better than nothing? Because that's a really good question, you know. And I, I thought about two things in relationship to that. And one is, one is, well, maybe it depends on how it is that you are. Right? Because it could be that there are ways of being in the world that justify the world. And there are ways of being in the world that make the world unbearable. And I believe that the narrative that runs through the biblical stories is precisely a dialogue between those two types of being. And the optimistic part of the story is that 
Being requires limitation and suffering. There's no escape from that. But there are modes of being that allow that to be perhaps even more than tolerable. Perhaps there are modes of being that allow that to be good. And it's a straight and narrow road. It's a very difficult road to tread. So, so I think, well, that, that's possible. You know, I'm, I'm not an optimist by nature. And, but uh, that's, that's one of the things that I've conceptualized and, and read about that I actually find plausible. Because it's certainly the case, everyone knows this, that there are ways that you can act that make things worse. Everyone knows that. And so if that's the case, there has to be the opposite, right? There has to be ways that you could act that make things better. And obviously you can act in ways that make things really way worse. And so the question is, well, are there ways that you can act that make things really much better? And I think that's the question is, can we have our cake and eat it too? Can we have the being that requires limitation and suffering and also simultaneously transcend that by our mode of being? And I believe that the biblical stories and perhaps not only the biblical stories, but the biblical stories are the human imagine, one of the human imagination's best attempts to address and answer that question. That's what the entire story is about. Funny thing about a home story, instead of being insignificant, in the home story, we're honored guests. Now, is the Bible telling the house story or the home story? It's a legitimate question to ask. In a home story, we're honored guests because God has done this for us, ordered it for us, made it function for us. Scientists might call that the fine-tuned universe, the anthropic principle. We just call it good theology. God made the world for us. But that's not all. He made it to be our home. But it's not quite our home. In fact, it's actually a B&B, &B, a bread and breakfast, because it's God's place. It's his home, and he's made it accommodating to us because he wants to be here in relationship with us. So the home story is that it's made to function for us, just like a bed and breakfast is set up to function for the guests, but it belongs to somebody else. And they want to relate to us. You know, in, when Jesus is talking to the disciples in the upper room, John 14, he tells them, you know, I'm, I'm going away. No, 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 don't do it. You know, I'm going away. Um, but... Don't worry about it. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I'm going to prepare a place for you, then I'll come back to get you, to take you there, so that, don't miss it, so that where I am, you might also be. That's not the first time that God was preparing a place for us. That's what this is. That's where we are. God has prepared this place for us so that where we are, He is. Relationship. That's what it's about. Now, if God's presence is somewhere, that makes it sacred space. So I would like to propose that what we've got is God preparing 
sacred space. The home story for God is the origins of sacred space. Not an empty cosmos, not just a house with nobody living in it, but now a place for us, functioning for us, him living there with us. Now, so I've suggested already that day one is telling you about time. God created time, a function, part of the ordered world. Day two, uh, God makes the, hmm, is he making a solid dome? For those of you who know Hebrew, the rakia. Is he making a solid dome, or is he making, like NIV translates, the expanse? Well, in the book, Lost World of Genesis 1, I, I favored the solid sky. I've changed my mind. Uh, it happens, you know. Um, and largely, that's not because I changed my mind about whether there was a solid sky. I changed my mind about whether rakia is the word for solid sky. And I changed my mind because I found another Hebrew word that I think is the word for solid sky, and therefore this is not the word for solid sky, and therefore the rakia is the expanse. It's the air bubble. You remember the Egyptian picture? The god Shu that's in there creating the living space for people as he holds apart the sky and the earth. Although in the Israelite account, it's the waters above and the waters below that are being held apart by this expanse. Now, you need to notice then that this word rakia is not an object. They're not thinking molecules of hydrogen and helium and oxygen. Okay, we're not talking about materiality here. God's creating living space. And it's in that living space that we find that all of, and again, the domes holding up the waters above, the waters blue. Everybody in the ancient world believed there were waters above. This is nothing new or revolutionary in any way. Um, everybody believed that. Okay, and it's those waters above that contribute to what God is setting up a system of in this day, and that is weather. Then the third day, he doesn't manufacture any objects. He just says, let the dry land emerge. It's already there. Let the dry land emerge. And, and let these plants sprout. Let them drop seed and sprout. That's an order, function kind of system. And he sets that up to work in an ordered realm. And so on the third day, that's why we can have food. The first three days then, God created significant functions for human existence. Time, weather, food. Now I submit that if you go to any culture in any time period, pick your place, pick your time, pick your people group, okay, they all understand very well the issues of time, weather, and food. Not so much quarks and supernova, but time, weather, and food they've got down pat. Matter of fact, most every conversation you have with a stranger is about time, weather, or food. I mean, they're really kind of the only things we ever talk about when it gets down to it. It'd be hard to add a number four to the list. This is our ordered world, and God set it up. Now, is the text aware that these are the three categories that constitute the ordered cosmos in which humans live? Yeah. Look at Genesis 8.22, after the flood. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, that sounds like food. Cold heat, summer, winter, sounds like weather, day and night, time. 
will never cease. The text knows these categories. I could take you through cuneiform texts that these are the categories they work with. Sumerian texts, Babylonian texts, Egyptian texts, from early literature all the way into the Hellenistic period, these are the categories. And they talk about creation in these terms. I don't have time to do that tonight. Okay, so we have the three functions. Days four, five, and six are different, though. Days four, five, and six are functionaries that inhabit those areas. So we get the sun, moon, and stars. We get the birds and the fish. We get the land creatures and people. And they inhabit those. Now, so functionaries are part of the picture, that God fills the earth with these functionaries. Now, we could say, well, okay, now we're getting to God making objects. Okay, but, you know, if you've got to wait to day six to get there, you still would question what kind of creation account is this? I mean, you say, but what about day four? God made the sun, moon, and stars. Question. When we think about the moon, we say, oh, well, that's a rock in orbit, 375,000 miles away on average, pocked by the asteroids, reflecting the light of the sun, rotating, revolving. Those are all the, it doesn't go through our mind, it's so subconscious, but this is how we think about the moon. It's a material picture of the moon. Did the Israelites know any one of those details? No, they don't. Hmm. Okay, so when they talk about the moon, what are they thinking? What's their material picture? No, not green cheese. Try again. What's their material picture? No. No. They don't have one. They don't know the moon is an object. Same with sun and stars. They don't know they're objects. Well, what do they think they are? Exactly what they call them. Lights. So when the text talks about God making sun, moon, and stars, the Israelites are not thinking God's making objects. Even though we know they're objects, and we can say God made those objects, by the way, yes, he did, of course. God built the house. Yes, of course, he did. But we're not asking all the things that God did. That would be a long, long lecture. But it's, we're asking, what is this story? What's the Genesis 1 account? What origin story are they telling? It's not about objects. Now, but we say, but it says made. It said God made. Hebrew word asa. What about that? Hebrew, when, when students learn Hebrew, they learn asa means to do or to make. Let me tell you, that is only the beginning. Asa occurs over 2,600 times, and it's translated dozens of different ways in any given translation. So we're really kind of doing a shortcut here to say it means to do or to make, not to mention the fact that do and make are very different things. So, what does the text talk about when it says that God asad the sun, moon, and stars? Hmm, what kind of activity is that? Well, we do, do a little looking around. Exodus 20 is often brought up in the fourth commandment. In six days you shall do, that's asa, 
all of your work. On the seventh day you shall not do, that's Asa, any of your work. For in six days the Lord your God, Asa, the heavens and the earth. Okay, well, now what's going on? We translated do here and we translated do there. Why don't we translate do here? Well, of course, I'll tell you why, because in English it doesn't make any sense to say God did the heavens and the earth. We're driven by Hebrew idiom, not by Hebrew words. So what kind of activity is it talking about here in Exodus 20 as it clearly refers back to the seven-day account in Genesis? Well, look at Genesis 2.2. By the seventh day, God had finished all the work, same word, all the work that he had been mm, doing, that's Asah. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Same word. Now, here we can see Exodus 20 is quoting Genesis 2 and, importantly, Genesis 2-3. Then the Lord God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on, the, on it he rested from the work. What is God's work? The work of creating, that's bara, that he had done, that's asa. What does it mean for God to asa something in Genesis 1? He's doing his work. What is that work? He's barring. He's creating. Is that a material manufacturing process? No reason to think so. We can look at other uses. Genesis 3.21, God assaws the garments for Adam and Eve. Wow. That's an interesting use. Amos 5.8, God assaws the constellations. Obviously not a material kind of process here. Isaiah 44, 22, the servant is formed in the womb. Often involves supervising, commissioning, delegating. Job 37, 2-13, lists of what God does, Asa, is filled with functions. We're a little bit confused. Because now we say, well, why would God need to rest? I mean, he doesn't get tired, he doesn't need sleep, he doesn't need downtime, leisure, he's not reading a good novel, you know. What's, it, what's up with God needing rest? And furthermore, what is this concept doing in a creation account? This is a creation account, why, why, why would it talk about that? Well, see, we need some pieces of information that we do not have. If you were to show this seven-day account to a Babylonian or an Egyptian, they would look at it and they would say, oh, this is, this is a temple account. And you'd say, oh, oh, oh what do you mean? How, how, I don't see the word temple there. I'm even reading Hebrew text. And I don't see the word temple there. What do you mean it's a temple account? They said, well, it's kind of obvious, isn't it? Well, they say, well, God rests. Yeah, yeah. You know, Bill and I had a professor that, you know, would kind of coax you to get the right word, you know, and, you know, come on, give me the right word, give me the right word, some obscure thing that was in his brain that we didn't have any chance of getting. But every once in a while, just a lucky guess, you know, he's, he's going like this, and then you'd say the word, he'd say, exactly. <laughs> you know, so, so here the Babylonians and Egyptians would be doing the same thing to us. Come on, come on, think. Well, there's something we don't know. What we don't know is that in the ancient world, God's rest in temples. And therefore, if God is resting, 
It's a temple story. Temples were built for gods to rest in. And therefore, something that is obvious to any reader in the ancient world, we miss entirely. The temple is not only a house for the deity, it is the command center of the cosmos. This is where the God runs the cosmos. You know, it's just like if you were thinking of the White House and you thought it was all about the Lincoln bedroom. No, no, it's about the Oval Office, folks. You know, it's where the president runs the country. That's what makes that important. And it's the same thing with the, the temple. This is where God runs the company. It's the, the company, the country, the cosmos. It's the hub of operations. Okay? And we see that this is, this is addressed in a biblical theology of rest. When God says that he's going to bring the Israelites rest from their enemies all around, it's not that he's going to bring them, what, leisure time? No. Stability, security, order, so they can live their lives. When Jesus says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you naps. No, I will give you rest. And that's the order and stability of kingdom living. And there's a yoke to carry. Take my yoke upon you. But it's rest because there's order and stability in the kingdom. And Hebrews 4 tells us you've not yet entered that rest. See, the biblical theology of rest helps us understand this. That it has to do with kingdom not leisure. God ceases his ordering, Shabbat, to cease. He ceases his ordering because it is now optimally ordered for human life, and therefore he takes his command. God's rest is equivalent to God's rule. Let's look at the text. Psalm 132, let us go to his dwelling place, temple. Let us worship at his footstool. Come to your resting place, Menucha. Okay, and you in the ark of your might. For the Lord has chosen Zion. This is my dwelling. It's a temple. This is my resting place. Forever and ever, and here I will sit enthroned. God's rest is equated with his rule. You know, when you move into a new place, a new apartment, new house, what do you start with? Boxes, boxes everywhere. No order whatsoever. You cannot live your life in boxes. And so you begin ordering your world, unpacking the boxes, putting everything in its place. And you order that world. And when you're done ordering it, the last box unpacked, someday I'll get there. I've only lived in my house uh, eight years, so uh, someday I'll get to that last box. But at any rate, when you finally get to that last box, then you can say, ah. And you take a nap, and then you leave and never come back. No, of course not. Um, we're not, okay, you now are able to rest, which means you are in a controlled environment which you have set up and ordered for your use, and you are now able to function normally in that ordered setting. Creation. People may be the climax of the six days, but make no mistake, rest is the climax of the creation account. Do not talk to me about the six days of creation. It's a seven-day process. And without the seventh day, it's meaningless. God doesn't order it for nothing. What did God do on the eighth day? He ruled. What did he do the ninth day? He ruled. 
That's what he did the six days for, to enter that rest and to rule. And he's been doing it ever since. Rest is the main goal of creation. See, and we lose that entirely when we think that this is a house story, when we think it's about material objects, because then we don't know what to do with day seven. But rest is the main goal of creation. He is ordering it in order that we rest in it. We do, he does, relationship. Resting expresses control over an ordered system. Rest is not the opposite of activity. Rest is not becoming uninvolved. Engagement, not disengagement. Rest is something we engage in. It's not disengaging from everything. Rest God gives resolves unrest. That's what this origin story is about. Today's podcast is made possible because of the generous support of listeners just like you on Patreon. I can't do it without you all. I really enjoy that I don't have to sell advertisements or plug ads into this podcast to kind of help meet some of the needs and and ensure that I can continue to set apart some time to really work on this and to give this my attention. So thank you all for your support. There's, of course, additional bonus perks for those of you that are supporting or are considering supporting we have discussion forums. There'll be a discussion forum for this episode, bonus Q&A episodes, monthly Zoom meetings, uh, a whole bunch of other stuff that you can check out on my Patreon page. There'll be a link provided in the description below. And finally, I do want to give an extra special thanks to those who are kind of going above and beyond the call of duty in our Theology 201 group and higher. It's people like Clint, Jesse, Alex, BJ, Daniel, Eli, Elise, Dr. Jim, John Mark, John Michael, Josie, JT, Justin, Lola, Luke, Matthew, Michael Hernstein, Michael Peterson, Mike Thomas, Paul Spencer, Paul Reese, Peter, Rob, Sam and Nicole, Sam P, Sarah R, Sean C, and Taylor S. Without you, I can't keep this thing going. So thank you so much. And until next time, we'll talk again soon.